Okay, um, we're going to get back into our study of the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, we're, we're in the second chapter still, the messages to the seven churches. And for the sake of review, I just want to take a moment and rehash a few things. Remember the book of Revelation, the outline is given to us by Christ in chapter 1. It breaks down naturally into three parts. The things which you have seen, Jesus told John to record. That's the vision of Christ uh, as detailed in the first chapter. John was also told to record the things which are. That's the piece of the book we're in now, the church age, chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches. And then John was told to record the things which shall be hereafter. That begins in chapter 4 to the end of the book. The things which are future or after the things that are. And in terms of prophetic foreview, it's very evident that the period of the things which are, the letters to the seven churches are a reference to the church age, the age we are presently living in. That age began when Jesus Christ returned to heaven and the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believer at Pentecost. And the church was formally born. I mean, I can't really say that the first church started at Pentecost because Jesus gave us the pattern for a church in His earthly walk. And what He demonstrated in gathering His disciples and teaching them and sending them out, their fellowship one to another and their ministry was a pattern for what the church later would become. So some have said that Jesus Christ was the pastor of the first church. And that church included His disciples and those women that followed Him. And that church's ministry, headed up by Jesus Christ, was seen in the Gospels. That was a pattern. And with the coming of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the believer, the church was formally born. And they had a pattern whereby they could follow. That's why the book of Acts is so important for the Christian, not only as a record of the history of the early church, but more than anything, the book of Acts is an example of how the earliest Christians, those many of whom walked with Jesus, understood and carried out the Great Commission. God, Jesus gives His Great Commission in the New Testament. It's spoken uh, a little bit differently at least five times. And then we look at the book of Acts if we want to understand what that looks like. Acts was the beginning of the church age. And then we come here in the book of Revelation and these messages are given to the seven churches. I've said it many times. When we read these passages of Scripture, we need to understand that first of all, these were actual churches that existed in John's day in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. They weren't the only churches and in some ways, they were obscure in view of the churches that were established by Paul on his missionary journeys. So many of the larger churches like Corinth, Jerusalem, Antioch aren't mentioned here. Okay, the church at Jerusalem was scattered when the Romans uh, overthrew the city in 70 AD and destroyed the temple, but Antioch's not mentioned here. It was the place where believers were first called Christians. So these churches weren't necessarily... The only churches, the biggest churches, the most influential. In fact, Thyatira was pretty obscure in terms of its size and its location. Yet it's the longest letter written. So, they were actual churches in John's day, but they must also be types of churches because they're not the primary churches established in the book of Acts, and they're not the only ones. And they're all in one area, which seems to be the area that John had his influence 
mostly in toward the end of his life. And so these are not only actual churches in John's day, they're types of local churches that exist at all times. I mean, we can look around and see churches that reflect the spirit of Ephesus or Smyrna, particularly Smyrna in other countries, persecuted brethren. We can see churches like Pergamos everywhere where the where the church has married the world. We can see churches like Thyatira. There's a big, huge church that's been around for a while that is Thyatira. I don't know if you can discern that when you read this message. But there's a big, huge church that calls itself Holy Mother Church that's not a church and it isn't Christian. And this is Thyatira. We'll talk about that a little bit. But these are types of churches. But beyond that, Revelation is a prophetic foreview of God's plan and purpose for the ages from the church age until the end of time. And it fits perfectly with the book of Daniel. Which yeah, the book of Daniel's the prophecies of Daniel's book primarily focus upon Israel, another program in God's purpose and plan. And the two fit together perfectly. So these churches go beyond being just types of churches. You know, it says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This proves that this is a message for anyone in church that will hear. They are also a prophetic foreview of what I would call the church age, the age we're living in, the age that began at Pentecost and ends when Christ raptures His church out of this world and then begins to pour out His wrath upon this planet in the period of tribulation. That period of tribulation exists for two reasons. Number one, to get Israel's attention to wake them up in the time of Jacob's trouble that is called in the Old Testament. And number two, for God to pour out His wrath upon the earth as a predecessor to the actual setting up of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in which He will reign with His saints over this earth on the throne of David from Jerusalem as promised in the Old Testament. So the church age is the time which is now. Paul speaks about a time coming when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. And then all Israel will be saved. God's going to come to a place where He's done with the church. He's going to take the church out. There's going to be a point in time when Israel is brought to her utter end. And the entire nation living at that time is going to wake up and turn to Messiah. And part of that will be because of the witness of God's chosen that He will seal from the nation of Israel to preach that gospel of the kingdom during the period of tribulation. So these messages to the seven churches are during the church age. And they fit perfectly. You couldn't discern this back when they were written. You couldn't discern this necessarily 500 years ago. You couldn't really even discern it as easily 150 years ago. But looking back at history, the idea that this is a prophetic foreview is confirmed. The church at Ephesus reflects the apostolic church. The spirit of the apostolic church from the days of Pentecost up until around the death of John at the turn of the first century. And then we see the church at Smyrna is covered by that period of persecution that God used to scatter the early Christians around the world so the gospel could be preached. It was a period where Smyrna was told they would suffer persecution for ten days. History reveals that there were ten official persecutions conducted by the Roman Empire against the Christians. And then Pergamos begins in A.D. 312, plus or minus a couple years, when Constantine is made emperor and officially makes Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And then the church becomes settled in the world and begins to tolerate false doctrine. I talked about how all of this false doctrine we see in Roman Catholicism and even 
uh, uh, reflected in Protestant churches today had its roots during that Pergamos church period when these false teachings were tolerated. That Pergamos period ends, I believe, around A.D. 607 when the Bishop of Rome is formally recognized as the head of the church or the vicar of Christ on earth. And then we come into the period of Thyatira, which is what I call the devil's millennium, the dark ages. You know, approximately A.D. 500 to A.D. 1500, a thousand years in which the Roman Catholic Church ruled the civilized world and ruled it uh, with the aid of the devil. And many, many Christians were persecuted. Many suffered because they translated the Bible into their language and were caught possessing a Bible. And during the Dark Ages is the period when what was tolerated at Pergamos becomes taught by the church. That spirit of Jezebel, which is Roman Catholicism, as I believe, in all its wickedness, or what Roman Catholicism teaches or represents, that same spirit. So we have local churches at John's, in John's day, types of local churches that exist at all times, and a prophetic foreview. So we are moving now with the church at Thyatira into the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. When, when, you know, it, during the Dark Ages, there were probably, maybe, at one time existing only 50 copies of the complete New Testament in the entire world. And people were in the dark because they had no knowledge of the Scriptures and they were being taught what came from Rome. And it was all sorts of, uh, uh, of false teaching and paganism mixed with Christian teaching. But God still had a light. He still had a remnant. As we see here in this message to the church at Thyatira, those who had not known the depths of Satan. And because of that light that was sown throughout those ages and for those martyrs that gave their blood, Impetus was given for the Reformation that would come when the Bible would come to light and people would begin to get access to it because of the invention of the printing press. As a result, God's truth went into all the world and then people began to say, hey, Holy Mother Rome is not preaching gospel truth. And men began to step away and break away from that. So that's kind of where we are in history. I'm not going to get very specific because it's just a general period when the papacy or Rome dominated the world. And all of the false teaching we see in Romanism today took shape and took its final form or came to fruition during this time and began to be taught as official church dogma. So at this point, the church as a whole is beyond repentance. It's gone so far that it can't be made right again. And that's why Christ begins here appealing to the remnant appealing to the remnant. So those are some things to keep in mind as we study. So let's just review here. The first message was the, was the church... Ah, this is not working. The first message was Ephesus. This was the backslidden church. You've, lost, you're, you've left your first love. Christ says repent. Then we had Smyrna the persecuted or the suffering church. There's no condemnation in this letter. They are commended and exhorted to be faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Then you have the church at Pergamos. Some call it the worldly church, but I don't think that's an accurate representation. We talked about how it's the tolerant church. The problem at Pergamos wasn't what was being done per se. 
It's what was being allowed. And that's why Christ spoke to you and not them. To the remnant, which was the majority at the time, about what was being tolerated. And now we get to Thyatira, which is the unrepentant church. And I want you to just, as I'm preaching, just look and see if you can come up with what I'm referring to here. At this point in the message to the seven churches, a profound change takes place in how the churches are addressed. The first four, three churches are, I'm sorry, right here. The first three churches, the address happens a certain way. But beginning with Thyatira, it changes. And the last four churches are different in terms of the way Christ addresses them. And I believe there's a reason for that. And we're going to talk about it here later. But just kind of peruse over that as I'm preaching and see if you can see what I'm talking about. It's very subtle. And remember how I told you that subtle differences are important in the Word of God? We should pay attention to pronoun changes. You know, right there in Pergamos, Jesus is talking to you about the sins of them. So it's very evident that He's speaking to a remnant who was tolerating false teaching, although that had not yet taken over the church. And uh, here we have a change in the way the letter... I'll just say it this way. It's in the way the letters are ordered. In the way that Christ's exhortation is ordered. It changes with Thyatira and it, it, it maintains that pattern for the remaining four churches. So just think about that as we get into this passage. So we're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, verses 18 through 29. And before I read this, I want to just make a profound statement that will offend some people that listen to this message online. The Roman Catholic Church is not Christian. Catholics are not Christian. Okay? The Thyatira Church period is the Dark Ages, the Devil's Millennium, when the, we see the height of the papacy or the Roman Catholic power in history. This is a clear picture of Romanism here as we read what Christ says to the church at Thyatira. Just like the actions of Jezebel in the Old Testament, Roman Catholicism and the Pope is guilty of spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. With Rome, it's Mother Church, Mother Mary and the Pope instead of Jesus Christ. This is wicked. This is paganism. The Bible-believing Christian has no business being in partnership with Rome. Rome has been wicked since its institution, since the papacy was established, and its ideas and its doctrines have not changed since the Middle Ages. There have been councils in the 20th century that try to couch what Rome really believes and really feels. But the councils declared during the Dark Ages and some that followed up as a counter-reformation made declarations about spiritual and doctrinal dogma that have never been changed, that are still in the catechism as taught to the children and still believed. And make no mistake, the Bible-believing Christian is an enemy of the papacy. The papacy today, it's not politically expedient for them to execute, quote-unquote, the heretics. But when it becomes expedient again, that will become their modus operandi. It's what it's always been. I don't understand the pro-life movement that's taken hold in the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church has never been pro-life. All you've got to do is look at the Middle Ages. They weren't pro-life when it came to people who did not agree with their dogma. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church is the greatest enemy 
of the Bible-believing Christian that's ever existed in the history of this planet. Between A.D. 500 and A.D. 1500, the Thyatira church period, more than 50 million Bible-believing Christians were martyred primarily because they practiced believer's baptism and secondarily because they believed in the copying and the distribution of the Word of God. Mother Church is not a friend of Jesus Christ or of the Bible-believing Christian. We have no business joining hands with Rome. And shame on those Baptists today who buddy up with Rome, who pray about the selection of a Pope, who urge other Christians to join hands in the spirit of love and unity. Shame on them. Baptists in particular because it's a disgrace and it's spitting on our heritage and it's basically saying to the martyrs who gave their lives so that we could have an English Bible that what you did means nothing. I want to read real quick something from... This is the Philadelphia Baptist Confession of Faith. This was put together in, the seven, in 1707 as a product of what was called, uh, uh, as a product of the first Baptist association that was ever founded in America. And that was in, uh, that was in uh, Philadelphia. And those Baptist associations became very instrumental in the missions movement that took place in the 17 and 1800s. Baptists, more than any other denomination here in America, was, were responsible for missions, for getting a, 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 a passion for the nations and sending out missionaries. You know, the Great Awakening, some of which were a result of the preaching of some of the, the great Protestant preachers that God rose up, Wesley Whitfield and, and uh, others. You know, the fruit of their, of their uh, ministries were Baptist churches popping up left and right all over the United States. And so you began to see these Baptist associations that came together and they wanted to define what do we believe. And in this confession of faith, in discussing the church, this is what the Philadelphia Baptist Confession reads. Some of the earliest Baptists in America, per se. Some that knew the shunning and, and the, the, the borderline persecution that came, even for them, at the hands of the Protestant churches in early America. You know, preaching without a license, you ended up in jail, or you had your property taken, or you were whipped. Those good old Puritans, used by God, praise God, came to America, when they got things set up, they came for religious freedom, they began to do exactly what Mother Rome did and persecute those that didn't agree with him, with them. That's why Roger Williams fled the Massachusetts Bay Colony and went and established Rhode Island because he was told he couldn't preach without a license from their particular church. But this is what these Baptists had to say about the church. And, and, and this mirrors also the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was the, the Anglican or the Church of England uh, their confession of faith reads just like this. So does the New Hampshire, uh, I mean the London Baptist Confession from the 1600s. Listen to this. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, that son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Pope is the spirit of Antichrist, according to our Baptist forefathers. How dare those that peddle the Baptist name today claim that the Pope is a brother in Christ and that the church is, is Christian and that we can walk together with him. How dare they do that? Shame on them. 
Roman Catholicism is not Christian. Revelation 17, when we get to this passage about the great whore that sits upon that scarlet colored beast, you can't read that and not believe or not understand that this is a reference to the false religious system as embodied today by Papal Rome. In fact, it's called Mystery Babylon, which tells us this is a symbol. It's not a reference to the literal city of Babylon per se. Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs of Jesus. No one else in the history of the world has been drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs of Jesus, more so than Rome. What religious system has more false teaching, idols, and license to sin than the Roman Catholic Church? What system is built around a woman more than the Roman Catholic Church? Thyatira was rebuked for tolerating Jezebel and allowing her to teach. What, what system is built more around a woman, Mother Mary, than any other system? It's interesting because it says in Romans 17.9 that this whore that sits upon this scarlet beast is that great city which rules over the kings of the earth. That's Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism dominated the kings of the earth during the Middle Ages. In fact, there was one king, I believe he was a king of England, who did something to, to, to offend the Pope. And to keep from getting excommunicated, he came to the castle where the Pope was residing, in the snow, barefoot, and scantily dressed. And in a show of humility, he put his face on the ground in the snow and begged all night for the Pope to forgive him. A king! bowing at the foot of the Pope. I forget the name. I think Henry, King of England, a uh, long time ago. I'd have to, 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 to look that up. But just ruling over the kings of the earth. And then it says that the beast that she sits upon has got seven heads. And the seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman, the city, sits. Well, what is Rome? Rome is the eternal city built upon seven hills. That's what it's known. So that false religious system as embodied in Catholicism is not something we are told to embrace in God's Word. It's something we are told to flee from. It's something that is beyond repentance as we see here in the message to the church at Thyatira. Okay, let's... Uh, wow, by way of introduction there. Let's read this passage. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18-29. through 29. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But... Unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, which have not this doctrine, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put none other upon you none other burden, 
But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers. They shall be broken shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So what we have here is a very long letter. It's the longest of the seven letters, and it is the most severe. The most severe. So just think about what I said earlier. Something happens here in the order of the letter that's different from the previous three. And this new order that Christ uses continues with Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And there's a reason for it, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay, before we actually get into the text, there are three points that are of interest in this letter. And I, I want to just highlight them here at the beginning. Because we need to keep these things in mind as we look specifically or exegetically at the text. Number one, okay, in verse... 18, Jesus Christ identifies Himself as the Son of God. This is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where Christ is referred to as the Son of God. Elsewhere, He's referred to as a king or the Son of Man or the, or the one that rides on a white horse, but this is the only place where Christ is called the Son of God. Now, I've had people say to me numerous times when I preach on these college campuses, how can you say that Jesus is the Son of God? He never called Himself the Son of God in the New Testament. It's just what other people said. That's a wicked, filthy lie, number one. And if you say that, you've never read the New Testament. Because right here, Jesus Christ calls Himself the Son of God. He is speaking. This is what the Son of God has to say. Also, if you look in the, in the Gospels, John 9, 35-37, John chapter 9, Jesus healed that blind man. Okay, And that blind man was called into the temple to give testimony. And those wicked Pharisees were like, who are you to instruct us, you know? How did, you, how did this happen? And, and, and this blind man was like, this man said to open my eyes and they were open. Who's ever heard, you know, if this man's a sinner or not, I don't know, but who can open the eyes of the blind? And then they kicked him out of the temple. And they asked his parents, you know, was this man born blind from his youth? And they said, ask him, he's of age. Well, this man got kicked out of the temple and he was there saddened by the events that transpired. And Jesus came upon him at the end of John 9 and said, why are you downtrodden? And, and uh, the man explained what had happened, Jesus had seen. And Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of God? And this man says, show me the Son of God and I will believe. And Jesus said, I, the one that speaks to you, am He. So don't tell me Jesus didn't claim to be the Son of God. In John 10.36, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. You know, they were saying, you know, you're blaspheming. And then Jesus quoted Psalm 82 and said, how can you accuse me of blasphemy? I'm the one that God sanctifies. How can you accuse me of blasphemy because I call myself the Son of God? When Jesus was brought to trial before the Jewish uh, religious leaders, they accused Him of calling Himself the Son of God. When He hung on the cross... The people walked by and said, this man said he was a son of God and he can't even come down off the cross. Before Pilate, the Jews accused him of blasphemy because he called himself the son of God. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was standing before the high priest, the high priest asked him clearly, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Messiah means anointed one. And the Jews understood Messiah 
was a son of David, but also the son of God, because that's revealed throughout the Old Testament. Jesus didn't reply with a yes or no answer. He said, you say it, but I'll tell you this. From henceforth, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus quoted John, uh, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which is the primary Messiah passage in the Old Testament. That is the primary uh, description of Messiah in His relationship to His kingdom and the kingdom of Israel as promised to David. The Jews understood Daniel 7 to be referring to their Messiah. They understood that Son of Man it equals Son of God equals Messiah. And that's why when Jesus quoted that message and applied it to Himself, that passage, the Jews understood Him to be calling Himself the Son of God. And the high priest said, what need do we have of further witnesses? This man is blasphemed right here before us. Crucify Him. So, the idea that Jesus never refers to Himself as the Son of God is a wicked lie that somebody's been told in a college classroom and then they just perpetuate it out here. It's amazing the things that people perpetuate as truth that are far from the truth. And it's like the young person in this, this, this society, I believe that the American college student is one of the dumbest people on the face of the planet, to be honest with you. I've seen third world villagers who have more common sense and more intellect than rich kids at American college campuses. Some of the, the most foolish people on the face of the planet. But how in the world people have lost the ability to seek out something for themselves? All you've got to do is open the Bible. Right here, Jesus calls Himself the Son of God. So, there goes the argument out the window. Um, why does Jesus refer to Himself here as the Son of God to Thyatira? as opposed to the other churches, or as opposed to throughout the rest of the book. Well, Thyatira is obviously the most corrupt of the seven churches. Okay? Their diversion from true worship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was so serious that it demanded a reiteration of His deity. The church had strayed so far that Jesus' deity had to be reiterated. Does that reiteration need to happen today? I think so. Jesus is viewed, although men will claim to believe He's the Son of God, they preach as if He was just a man and a teacher. I mean, I love how some of these false churches will have their statement of faith on their website. And it looks good. It, it looks agreeable to most of us. But then what they preach and what they live out flies in the face of that. They claim they believe Jesus is God, but they preach Him as if He's just one way. They preach Him as if He was just a man and an example as opposed to a propitiation for our sins. So yes, that reiteration is needed today. In fact, that's why I preached it on the campus of Sacramento State University last week. I love to preach exegetically through a chapter of the Bible on a college campus. You know, sometimes I think street preaching can get delve very easily into ranting and raving. And I've been guilty of that, but... There shouldn't be any shame in getting out there and preaching right from the text. And so I decided to preach through the entire chapter of 1 John chapter 5. And I prefaced my message. I said, I, I introduced myself and I said, I want to make a very offensive statement to you. Jesus Christ is God. And then I took them through 1 John 5 and showed them why. I think that reiteration needs to be today. And that's why it's given here to the church at Thyatira. And you've also got to remember, this is the period of Roman Catholic dominance in history. Consider 
that Thyatira represents the dark ages of the Roman Catholic Church. So Jesus is saying to the church here, this is the Son of God speaking to you, not the Pope. This is the Son of God. You know, the Pope refers to himself as the Vicar of Christ, the Son of Man, the one who is here in place of Christ. So Jesus is saying, this isn't the Son of Man, the Vicar of Christ, the Pope. This is the Son of God talking to you. Wake up. Listen up. That's why this, uh, uh, this reference here is to Christ as the Son of God. So I find that very interesting. Number two, something also that stands out in this passage is there is no call to repentance for this church. At Ephesus, Jesus says repent. Smyrna wasn't given a call to repentance. They were told to hold fast, but there was no condemnation. Pergamos was told to repent. The remnant was told to repent of their toleration. Here, there is no call to repentance. In fact, it is said here in verse 21 that there was already given opportunity to repent and it was rejected. Therefore, there is no hope for the church of Thyatira here as a whole. So Christ starts speaking to the remnant. And this is where we have a profound change where the rest of the letters are concerned. Number three. Did anybody pick up on what, what, what it is? It's very subtle. I never saw it until I read where some, somebody pointed it out. My great uncle who wrote a book on Revelation, it's a layman's book, it's in very simplistic language, pointed it out, and I've never seen this addressed before, but it's very obvious. With Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, you have this letter to the church. Typically, you know, Smyrna accepted because there was no indictment. Typically, Christ introduces Himself with characteristics that reflect back on chapter 1 and John's vision. Characteristics that apply to that church in particular. Then He commends them. Then He rebukes them, accepting Smyrna. And then you have a call to hear. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then you have an address to the overcomers. Who are the overcomers? 1 John 5 says, He that overcomes is he that's been born of God. In other words, if you're born again, you're an overcomer. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So the overcomers are the true Christians. So in the first three churches, Christ gives a call to hear, to anyone will hear, followed by an address to genuine Christians. At Thyatira, it flips. It flips. With the last four churches beginning here, after the indictment, excepting Philadelphia, there is no indictment, you have an address to the true Christian, the overcomer, followed by a call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So instead of a call to hear, followed by an appeal to genuine Christians, you have an appeal to genuine Christians followed by a call to hear. Well, that has to be significant. I mean, it's consistent in the first three and then it, the order switches for the last four. Why? Why is this? Why is there this change? Okay, well, I've talked about how the church at Ephesus was at a dangerous crossroads. When you are faced with losing or leaving, not losing, leaving your first love, you're at a dangerous crossroads. And if you don't repent, the church will down spiral into apostasy very easily. 
dangerous. Then you have Smyrna, which is God's means of preventing that from happening. Persecution. It's what restores our zeal and our first love. And that persecution and that suffering is God's prevention. I think of a, the church at Ephesus is, is, is laying on like a four-lane superhighway. Then they come to a crossroads. And the crossroads is a means whereby you get off that road if you're not careful. Well, the road ahead is closed down by a roadblock. Something's happened and, the, and, the, and, 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 and uh, it's blocked off. So Smyrna or that persecution is the detour to get you around where that crossroads is, that turnoff because the, the highway is closed, and so that turnoff is not even an option because of the detour. That persecution is like God's detour to prevent us from following that temptation to turn down that road that leads to a diminished ardor and further to apostasy. Um, Pergamos, another dangerous crossroads. When we begin to tolerate sin, and if that's not repented of, what you see very quickly is what's tolerated becomes what is taught. And so with Pergamos, Christ begins to transition His address to the remnant. And then from Thyatira on, He's not addressing these churches as a whole, He's addressing the remnant. Because the churches as a whole, as I, you know, I believe, have gone beyond the point of repentance. There, from Tyre on, the church body as a whole is incapable of repentance, for it cannot see its evil. Thus, the call Christ gives is to the faithful. And so now what you have is a description of a genuine believer, he that overcomes, followed by, look, if any of you will hear, let you hear what the Spirit says. In other words, here's the description of the genuine believer, and then Christ is saying, if there's any of you out there, oh, listen, if you will hear. Whereas in the first three churches, Christ is addressing the church as a whole and says, if any of you will hear, let him hear. And then He defines what true belief is. Now He defines for the church what true belief is and then calls them to hear. And so I believe from this point on, the church as a whole is incapable of repentance and therefore Christ is addressing a small remnant. Now, you have to keep in mind concerning Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a church that there is no rebuke. It's just straight up commendation from the Lord, uh, just like Smyrna. Philadelphia is a bright spot in the midst of a corrupt, dead, in the midst of corrupt, dead, and lukewarm churches. Under the during the Philadelphia church age, there came great revival. But keep in mind, this revival was temporary. It's the missionary age, sandwiched between corrupt Roman Catholicism, dead Protestantism, and now what we have lukewarm churchianity. So it was still a remnant church, even though Philadelphia wasn't rebuked. It was still a remnant church. If you look at chapter 3, verse 9, it's talked about them in comparison to those who were of the synagogue of Satan. That's the main, you know, the church body as a whole. During that Philadelphia church period, those used by God during this age to bring about great revival were often men who were ostracized by their own churches and state churches and denominations. George Whitfield was a great preacher, he was an Anglican. And one, someone once said to him, Mr. Whitfield, the churches are closed against you. And he said, bless God, the fields are open. Why do you think Whitfield was preaching in the fields? Because his church despised him and didn't want to hear what he had to say. Okay? Then you had uh, uh, the fruit of the labors of these men, many of them Protestants, 
from Protestant denominations, the labors of these men resulted in churches that looked nothing like their spiritual mothers. So even the Philadelphia church period was a period uh, characterized by what God used the remnant to do. Okay, And it was a very amazing thing. God took a small remnant, just like He did with Gideon and the people of Israel, uh, to overthrow the Moabites. Just a small group of people. During that period, Philadelphia was a remnant and it changed the face of the planet for the things of the Gospel. So I believe these things are switched up because now we're at a point where Christ, the church as a whole, is beyond repentance because it can't see its evil and therefore Christ is specifically addressing the remnant. Does that make sense? That's the only thing I can figure out. It makes sense to me. There's a reason why it's switched up. And so those are some things to keep in mind as we study this message. Son of God, okay, very important here, no call to repentance. And now we have an address to the overcomer followed by a call to hear as opposed to a call to hear followed by an address to the overcomer. Remember, the overcomer is the genuine believer. Christ is defining what a genuine believer is as opposed to a false convert. 1 John makes it very clear. He, who is he that overcomes? But he that believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God or is born of God. To be born of God is to be born again. Read John chapter 1. So if you want to know the difference between a false convert and a true believer, just look at these calls to the overcomer in the seven churches. True believers do endure to the end. They do not fall away. Those that fall away show themselves to be of a different seed. Yes, we should examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. Yes, we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling to make sure our belief is genuine because when it's genuine, there is fruit and there is endurance. Okay? Now, let's look at this place, Thyatira. See, I mean, there's just so many interesting side notes here. I, I hate to gloss over it. And we are in, living in the age that this, this church age, the things that are, so it would behoove us to pay a little more attention here as opposed to getting to what we always want to get to, and that's the future stuff where there is some speculation about what exactly is being described. But we're living in this church age now, so we really shouldn't gloss over any of this. Thyatira was a small town about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. And it lied along a road, a Roman road, that was one of the most beautiful roads in the whole world at that time. A scenic byway, per se. Okay? And the road, particularly between Pergamos and Thyatira, this 40 miles, was beautiful. It was like a Blue Ridge Parkway or, or a Highway 120 through Yosemite National Park. It was a major Roman road and it was beautiful. And I think even in this is a subtle lesson. The road from tolerating sin to downright apostasy is often attractive, beautiful, alluring, inviting, and looking for all intents and purposes to be Christian or of God. A lot that takes place in the church today is taking us from toleration to downright apostasy and it looks good. It feels good. The purpose-driven life, it looks good, it feels good. Your best life now, it looks good, it feels good. The, the book by Joyce Meyer, Eat the Cookie, Buy the Shoes, it looks good, it feels good. But it, take, it takes you from a place of tolerating sin straight to apostasy of hell. Dangerous. Somebody look up Titus 1.16. 
someone else, Isaiah 29, 13. And thirdly, Matthew 15, verse 8. Titus 1.16, if someone has it. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. The road from Pergamos to Thyatira involves those that profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Don't tell me you know God, you love God, but you deny Him by the way you live your life. That's abominable. That's reprobate. It may look good because you can go cook up some soup at the soup kitchen, but God knows the heart. Isaiah 29, 13, what does God say to Israel? You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And your fear of me isn't a result of my teaching. It's a result of the precepts of men. Wow, isn't that a description of the church today? On that road from toleration to apostasy. In Matthew 15, 8, look what Jesus cites when He rebukes the religious leaders of His day. Matthew 15, 8. It's amazing. They hated Jesus Christ and all He did was quote their own Scriptures when He preached. The apostles preached from their own Bible, the Jews' own Bible, and they still hated Him. Isn't that what happens today? Preach the Word of God and you're the enemy of the church. You're intolerant. That road from toleration to apostasy is attractive. It tickles the ears, but it's dangerous. Thyatira was a small city, but it was very important commercially because of its location. It was located on a major trade route. And more so than any other contemporary city in the Roman province of Asia at that time, it was an attractive center of, a, of numerous trade guilds or trade unions. There were unions uh, like we have in the workplace today long ago. Trade guilds where people came together and operated their, their like businesses under certain rules. So that would quote-unquote benefit everyone. And so the trade guilds had a very strong presence in Thyatira, which was actually a manufacturing center for a lot of cloth, particularly purple, the purple dye. And so it was very difficult to make a living in Thyatira unless you, were, unless you belonged to a union. Okay? Now, some people in America know what that difficulty is. Now, that's very significant that Jesus is addressing a church that's living in a place where in order to do business, if you're not part of a union, you're going to find it very hard to do business. Now, in those days, being a part of a union was tied to false religion and idolatry. A lot of times the unions met in the pagan temples and engaged in pagan ritual. So you had a Christians in Thyatira who had to make a choice between their career in Jesus Christ. So that's a very significant fact that will come up here later. But this city was famous for the manufacture of purple dye, and it's only mentioned one time in the New Testament in a very obscure place, and it's an indirect reference. Does anybody know where that word Thyatira comes up again in the New Testament? It's in the book of Acts. Paul never went to Thyatira. No. 
Lydia, that's right, Lydia was from Thyatira, but she was in Philippi. When Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 16 responded to that Macedonian call where God gave them a vision of someone in Europe, Macedonia, present day Greece, say, please come over here and help us. Paul at that time decided no more to focus on Asia. You know, right there at the, the Bosphorus, you have Turkey. And uh, Asia Minor is considered Asia, and everything west of there is considered Europe. So God called Paul into Europe, that Macedonian call. And one of the first places he went was the town of Philippi in Macedonia. And the first person he met who was open to his gospel preaching was a lady named Lydia who was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. It's very interesting. Lydia was the first convert made in Europe. You know, you can look back over history and look at God's grace at how He sent the gospel to the Western world in a way that didn't even look anything like its presence in the Eastern world. I don't know why God chose to send Paul west instead of east, but we benefit from that today by the fact that the gospel has been preached in this country and we're the benefactors of it. It says that God didn't suffer Paul and Silas to go into Asia, but called them into Greece and the Western world. And that's where the gospel took root and spread. Now, undoubtedly, a lot of the corruption came up through Roman Catholicism, but God reserved unto Himself a remnant. And that remnant existed throughout history. And then it began to spring up even more during the Reformation. And then it sprung up even more when our forefathers left those shores and came to America to find religious freedom. The freedom to read the Bible, to preach it, and to live it. And as a result, we have what we have here today. Unfortunately, we've forgotten those things and we've turned our back on God in America just like Israel of old. But it's an amazing instance of God's providence in human history that results in the Western world having access to the Gospel as opposed to I go to Nepal, I go to Tibet, and people never heard the Gospel. Some will say, well, that's not fair. Well, who are you to say to God that's not fair? He's God, you're not. Period. But what a, what a, what a manifestation of His grace. A very uh, interesting point of His providence in history. Praise God, He's sending the Gospel to the East. He's done it through the missionaries. Praise God, countries like Nepal, which were closed 10-15 years ago, are wide open for the Gospel. God knows what He's doing. And I praise God that, that He sent the, the Gospel to these shores years ago and that we could be raised hearing it. Praise God for that. That ought to compel us to go out and preach it to those that have never heard. But in this fact that Paul... And here's another side note. I'm sorry, but this is important. We see here that Thyatira is not in Greece. Lydia was from Thyatira. Paul was called to go into Greece by God. Now, there's a subtle and important principle we see here with regard to missions. The big popular fad today in missions is what's called a people group mentality. It's this idea, God's calling me to a specific people group. And I'm going to go overseas and I'm going to work with this people group. And that's my focus. I won't take time. If you're, if you're not this people group, then that's not my problem. I'm not going to witness to you. I'm not going to disciple you. I'm not going to try to use you. I'm going to go, go work with this people group. That's the mentality today. Was that the type of missionary work that God was calling Paul to when He gave him the Macedonian call? Was He calling him to go specifically to the Greeks and the Western people? No, because the first divine appointment was somebody from Asia. So Paul is, saying, Paul is told to go to the Western world, but the first divine appointment was someone from the world he just came from. 
So it obviously wasn't a people group mentality because the one God sent was someone from the old world he had just come from, his first missionary journey. Someone that he didn't meet when he went through preaching in Asia Minor with Barnabas, but now he goes into the Western world and who's the first person that God raises up? In Europe, not a European, but an Asian. So obviously, it wasn't a people group mentality. I really don't like the people group mentality, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of good intent there. But I favor more of what I call a geographic mentality in terms of missions. We ought to be inspired by places and geography as opposed to people groups. Why do I say that? Well, this is the example given here. God's call wasn't to a people because there's only two types of people in the world saved and lost. His call was to a place. And His responsibility was to take that gospel to that place. I love places. I love Nepal. And as long as God opens a door of opportunity, I want to go there and saturate that place with the gospel. Guess what? There's about 60 to 70 people groups in Nepal. So if I want to be called to an obscure people group whose language isn't even spoken anymore, then I'm going to go over there and spend 30 years trying to translate the Bible into a language that only the elderly people speak anyway. When I can use the trade language spoken by all people groups in that country and go to the Nepalis and saturate Nepal with the gospel, it's a different mindset. I think the people group mentality, which has been kind of the fad of Southern Baptist missions for the last 10 years, is more man-centered than it is God-centered. I think it relies mostly on statistics as opposed to divine appointments. It's kind of got the idea that once a people is reached, in other words, once America, once Britain, once Finland are reached, they're always reached. There's no need to ever go back there. That's the mentality. It focuses on languages, obscure languages and cultures as opposed to how do we get the gospel out. It's based on a misinterpretation of Matthew 24, 14. Jesus says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations and then the end will come. Most people that espouse this people group mentality would say, well, I'm a part of taking the gospel to the, all the nations and maybe this person I'm going to witness to today is going to be the last one and then the end will come. Well, that reflects a misunderstanding of Scripture as it's laid out. Us Gentiles aren't going to be the ones that take the gospel to the last nation and the last people. It's not the church. Because during that period of tribulation, as we see later in this book of Revelation, God seals 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will complete the job begun by the church. And so we couldn't even witness to the last person if we wanted to. So it's a misinterpretation of Scripture and interpreting Scripture with Scripture. It often looks at Psalm 2.8, the great missionary passage. Those espousing this people group mentality, I've sat through the, I've sat through the missionary trainings, often quote Psalm 2.8, Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the world for thy reward. God's going to give us the heathen. We're going to go preach to these people groups that have never heard. These 70-30 people groups, or whatever they call them, and they have names for everything. I, I didn't give my signal. I should have about five minutes ago. So you're, you're right. You're right. Sorry, I forgot. Wow. You're right. You, I must have given some sort of signal because you did it at the right time. It was unintentional. Praise the Lord. Okay, so anyway, it's this misinterpretation of Psalm 2. And then it says in the very next verse, in verse 9, Ask me and I'll give thee the heathen for thy inheritance. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and dash their children against the stones. It's not talking about missionaries. That's talking about Jesus in His millennial kingdom. So you kind of get a little off base with that. I mean, what's the fruit of the people group movement? 
Well, look at today. Look at missions today. The world is in a state of darkness it hasn't seen since the dark ages. What's the fruit of it? doesn't mean it's wrong. I know God calls people to specific groups of people. I know that. But when they become so focused on a group of people as opposed to the gospel in a place, or maybe utilizing someone from another group to reach someone from that group, it becomes man-centered. When it comes to a place or a geography, look at the Great Commission. Jesus' disciples were told to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Places. Okay? Paul was told to go over to Macedonia, a place. A geographic mentality in missions, I believe, is more God-centered and it relies on divine appointments like what Paul had here with Lydia. I don't know why Lydia was in Philippi. Maybe she found that she couldn't be a part of a union because her heart was, was soft toward the things of God. So she came to try to do her trade in Philippi and as a result, God made sure she got the gospel and she was saved. And a church begun in her house. In Philippi, the same place where the Philippian jailer was saved. God had another divine appointment there in Philippi. It was the jailer from chapter 17, a European. But things got started there in the home of an Asian. So Paul wasn't bound by a people group mentality. If he were like some missionaries today, he wouldn't have wasted his time with uh, Lydia because she wouldn't have been the right skin color the right ethnic group. I think when we maintain a geographic mentality, I think that we recognize generational needs. Places that were reached a generation ago are some of the most unreached places on the face of the planet. I've been to Finland. Finland was such that in World War II, when the Soviets were trying to invade Finland, it's an amazing chapter of military history. This little small country, a lot of them on horseback, but because they knew how to live in the snow, they turned the entire Soviet army back. It's an amazing chapter in military history that happened during the 1930s. And during that period of time, the nation itself uh, was known for fasting and praying that God would deliver them. The president, the people in control would call the people to fast to meditate on the Word of God and to seek the Lord. And the Soviet army was turned back. That, was, that wasn't even a hundred years ago. And you go to Finland now, and it's like 87% Lutheran and about 97% lost. I mean, there's kids I talk to on the streets of Helsinki that have no concept of God. Period. So generations change things. But missions would say, Finland's already reached, we don't need to go there. That's the problem. And we see this subtle principle concerning missions right here and it involves the, the city of Thyatira. I think that we ought to be focused on places and be willing to share Christ with whoever is in that place. When I go to Nepal, there's an amazing opportunity right there in Kathmandu in Tamil to preach Jesus Christ to people from all over the world because they come to that part of town where the hippies and the pot smokers congregate. And they're there. And they speak English. And there's Nepalis there that are more apt to understand English and they speak Nepali because it's a trade language. And you can go there in Nepal and witness to people from all over the world. But people neglect it because they say, well, I'm not here to reach the whiteies. I'm here to reach this people group. Or I'm not here to reach the Nepalis in general. My people group lives in a jungle somewhere. I'm going to live here in Kathmandu though because it's comfortable and I'm going to go survey them once in a while and I'm doing my missionary work. 
what a joke. We've just decided that Nepal is a place God's opened a door of opportunity. When we go there, we're going to preach to anyone and everyone. Even the Nepalis, you know, they think, well, I've got to preach to my own people. And then they neglect the people from all over the world that come to their own country. They could be carrying out the Great Commission right there in Kathmandu. But they've bought into this man-made strategy, this complicated strategy. God calls you to a place, go. Preach the Gospel to whoever God puts in your path, regardless of their skin color or whether they're part of the people group you have a burden for. That ought to be our mentality, and that was Paul's mentality here in Acts 16, and it involved the city of Thyatira, so I thought it was worthy of mentioning. Our ministry, we're very, we're very uh, thankful for the support the church gives to our ministry. We try to maintain a geographic focus. It doesn't make us better than anyone. It doesn't mean anything's wrong with having a burden for a people group and seeking to reach them. Don't mistake me here. Nothing's wrong with that but it easily leads you to get off base if you're not careful. We just have the idea that we're willing to go anywhere God opens the door of opportunity to anyone God puts in our path. And in these days of globalism, I think that's the strategy demanded. We need to look at what Paul did. And that ought to be missions, in my opinion. That's a little side note. A little soapbox there, probably going to get me in a little bit of trouble. But thank God for any missionary that's willing to go out. Just don't forget that God may be sending you to a place and to a people, not for that people, but a divine appointment from someone from a very different background. And you better be obedient when God opens that door. Because that person might be the key to reaching that people group. Just as Lydia was the key here for the Gospel taking root in Philippi. Okay, She was open when Paul and them went down to the river. She listened and invited them back home. And a church was born. And when Paul and Silas got out of prison, they were able to go back to her home. First convert in Europe wasn't a European, it was an Asian. Praise God. And then the Gospel went throughout Europe. Second convert was a European. Jailer. So we have this very small church in a very small city is the recipient of the longest and most severe letter of the New Testament. I mean, of the, of, the new, of, the, of the letters to the churches in the New Testament. Any questions today? This is all background, but I think it's important. I know there's a couple of rabbit trails here, but they're not rabbit trails. I mean, Thyatira plays into this whole missionary a mentality that we see battle, see ourselves battling today. We've gone from a, the worldwide missions movement that had more of a geographic focus. What were the fruit? What was the fruit of that? The fruit of it was the gospel going into all these places and all these languages, churches being born, great revivals. And now we switch to a people group mentality. And what's the fruit of missions today? Humanit- all humanitarianism and very little gospel. It's a business. People don't go out by faith. They've got to raise all this money before they'll even think about going out. So all you've got to do is look at the fruit and you can draw some conclusions from that and then see what's mirrored there in Scripture. So these things are important. Um, these issues of, of the order and that letters being switched up, these things are important. Knowing a little background about Thyatira, it's as important. So I, I hope these things have kind of set the stage for us to actually get in the text. I wanted to do that today, but I think we're, we're, we're at about 12.30 now. And um, uh, we'll just actually get into the verse-by-verse exegesis of the text next week. It may take me 
two more Sundays to get through this message. That's okay. This is uh, messages to the churches. And those types of churches exist today. And unless we're walking with the Lord, stayed upon His Word, exhorting one another daily, we could turn down one of these paths and become like one of these churches. So we've got to digest everything God has here for us in these messages. And then we get into the prophecy, the future part of it. Uh, it'll be fun and entertaining to an extent, but some of that's speculation because we don't know exactly what some of those things are going to look like, although we do know God has a specific time frame, a plan, and a purpose. And we can wait and watch and understand the times just like the men of Issachar in the Old Testament who had understanding of the times and be ready. God doesn't call us to be ready without giving us uh, uh, instruction on what to be ready for and how to be ready for it. So, like I said, I don't know where this journey is going to end. Okay, It may end years from now and it may be interspersed with breaks when I'm on the mission field or whatever, but we'll get through it. And if you guys are content with that, I'm content with it. Okay, I was Somebody told me their pastor took their church through the book of James Book of James has five chapters, and I, they told me it took like two years. So, hey, praise the Lord for that. I don't feel so bad, okay? All right, let's uh, go ahead and just close. I'll close with prayer this morning, and then we can eat and fellowship together. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, I just pray you'd give us understanding and that your spirit would continue to illuminate us as we study these scriptures throughout the week and as we interpret other scriptures by what we read and as we seek to know proper context and then to apply these things to our lives, Lord. Lives that we are living right now in dark and troublesome times. Father, please protect us from a spirit of unrepentance. Please protect us, Lord, from blindness that would tolerate evil and then begin to justify it and begin to teach it. Just like we see in America today, Lord, what's been tolerated is now being taught in the churches. Please, God, protect us from those things. May we be a voice for the gospel. Not in arrogance or pride, Lord, but in humility. And born out of genuine compassion for those that are deceived and for the lost, Lord. May we be willing to go to a place, wherever that is you call us, whether it's right here in Catawba County or at the uttermost part of the earth. And may we be willing to share Christ with whomever you put in our path, Lord. You're no respecter of persons, whether they're red, yellow, black, or white. or Whatever language they speak, may we be obedient as Paul was. Thank you for that moment in history, Lord, where you ordained the gospel to move west. I don't understand that. Lord, I don't understand why you would save me. I don't understand those things, but you did, and I'm so thankful, Lord. I'm thankful for those that went out preaching the gospel so that we could have it sown here in America and we could be raised hearing it in our homes and in our churches. And Lord, now we're in days where men have forgotten those things and like Israel of old, America's turned its back on you. Lord, and the gospel is becoming harder and harder to find. And there's a famine for hearing the word of God, and the remnant is very small. Lord, strengthen us as you did our forefathers. Use us as you used them. Lord, please bless the food you've provided this morning. Thank you for such a blessing that so many don't even have the privilege of enjoying. Lord, uh, thank you for the fellowship. Use us this week to serve you. Thank you for those that have newly come to be with us. Lord, for those maybe that aren't among us this day, please minister to them. And Lord, we, we humbly seek to be taught by You, to be corrected by You,
uh, and to be changed by you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.